Remember this phrase, you don't have to take a copy of the ESV. Just remember the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And what we're going to do is we're going to read antiphonally through Psalm 136. So if you need uh, a prompt and you want to grab an ESV and, and w work through this with me, or you can just respond at each appropriate point, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we will read together Psalm 136, <clears throat> standing in honor of God's word, which is why I interrupted Matt before he said, you can be seated. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for you are worthy. You are the God of gods and Lord of lords. You are the king of heaven. And you alone have done these great wonders. You alone have accomplished salvation. And to you alone, we owe our lives, our obedience, our devotion, and all that we are. So we ask, Lord, that through this word, you would cause us to know this reality that all of this comes from your love. Lord, cause us to be overwhelmed by your steadfast love. Cause us to be certain more certain when we walk out of here than we were when we came in, that your steadfast love will endure 
forever, that it will never change because you won't change. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us so to experience your love that we would want to become imitators of you as dearly loved children. Lord, cause us to be those who love you and love our neighbors as ourselves, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> One of my kids celebrated a birthday this week, and as part of the festivities, we watched the movie Moana. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, the music's a lot of fun. Um, Mo Moana is just one more evidence that people love the gospel. Even people who reject the gospel, they really love it. They love the story. At least the story that, the parts of the story that don't indict them for their sin. So if you've seen the movie Moana, uh, I want you to think for, with, with me for a moment about it. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. Um, I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to tell you the deep inner meaning of the story, and it's not going to spoil anything about the way the, the movie actually goes, and you'll still delight in the music. It'll be a blast when you watch it. In the story, there's an original sin that this guy Maui has committed, and that original sin that Maui has committed results in death. Does this sound familiar? The wages of sin is death, right? Right? Uh, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. So Maui has committed this original sin that's going to result in death for everybody. But Moana, as I said, they're cherry picking, you know? It's like, it's like those people that are walking through the evidence and picking the flowers that they like, the parts of the, the, the evidence that, that support their case. Because in, in the story Moana, individual people are not actual sinners, you know? It's Maui who did this. And then all the other people, they're good people. They're just happy people uh, who never do anything wrong. But they're still going to be affected by Maui's sin. Whereas in the real story, yes, Adam's sin brings death into the world, but we're sinners too, volitionally. And, and I think this is one of the reasons that people don't like the real story. They don't like the real gospel because the real gospel gets in your face and says, you're a sinner. You individually are responsible. You are a sinner. Moana, um, so there's original sin, and in, 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 the, in, in the Bible, in Christianity, you've got the first Adam who commits the sin, and then the last Adam who accomplishes the heroic act of reconciliation that, that brings about reparation and restoration. Well, in the story of, of Moana, Maui commits the sin, and Maui brings about the restoration that's going to result in restoration of paradise and, and a renewal of life for everybody. And on the way, there's a descent into the underworld. And through this descent in the into the underworld, you know, the Bible has this, this bit in Romans 1 about how Christ was uh, uh, proclaimed the Son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. But in, in Moana, uh, Maui goes down into the other underworld where he gets his magic hook that enables him to do really cool stuff like you know, shapeshift and things. And down there in the underworld, he meets somebody who's, Chris, sing it for it. No, I'm just kidding. Shiny. It's, it's a really fun song. You should look it up. Well, through the descent into the underworld, through the heroic acts of um, self-sacrifice at points, there's an accomplishment of restoration that renews paradise. And, and it's really interesting how this develops. 
Because the goddess who was wronged at the beginning, the one who was, who was transgressed against at the beginning, she has become a goddess of wrath. And when the restoration is made, the wrath is placated, and she becomes a goddess of love who's giving life to all. It's kind of a, a corruption of the, of the true story. There's some problems with it. I mean, you know, one of the problems. This is like a, this is a real Peloponnesian Hawaiian myth. You can, you can Google, is Moana a real myth based in real mythology? And you come up with all these articles that will tell you about all this Peloponnesian beliefs and such. Um, uh, one of the problems is their, their, their stories don't really work, you know, because... Uh, the god of wrath has become this lava god. Well, lava is kind of where the islands came from. Was the god wrathful when the islands were being made? How does this all fit together? Well, it, it, you know, it doesn't all really hang together. And, and there, there are other problems. Uh, I really enjoy this song, um, You're Welcome. And uh, it's interesting how similar You're wel your Welcome, this song is, to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 the first three statements in the first three verses are give thanks to the Lord. And Maui is saying, you owe me thanks. So you're welcome. You're welcome. And then he goes through all the things that people are welcome uh, for. I I'm not going to go through this. You can, you can do it on your own. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that as he's saying... Um, you're welcome for the wonderful world you know. Hey, it's okay, it's okay. You're welcome. He then says, well, come to think of it, I gotta go. Hey, it's your day to say, you're welcome, because I'm gonna need that boat. I'm sailing away. You're welcome, because Maui can do anything but float. Some hero, some hero who supposedly lassoed the sun to lengthen the days for these people. He supposedly created coconuts, and he supposedly did all these wonderful... You're welcome for the wonderful world you know, but I can't float. That's kind of a problem. Some god. So he's stuck on this island. So, so it, you know, Maui obviously is not really worthy, is he, of thanks and praise. You know what else results in people liking a story like that that really tells the gospel? Maui makes no moral demands on anybody. Maui doesn't tell anybody who they can or cannot sleep with. Maui doesn't tell anybody how they must or must not live. Maui makes no moral demands on anyone. And as a result, there's nobody worshiping Maui today, is there? Because we all know Maui really didn't do any of these things, which is kind of one of the reasons I can enjoy this song and not feel like it's utter blasphemy and feel like I need to denounce this thing. Uh, it's really fun because it's so silly and preposterous, and I'm not, I'm not afraid of any of you all being tempted to worship Maui <laughs> as a result of watching uh, Moana. Nobody's going to worship Maui. Nobody's going to start a church of Maui. Nobody's going to get out of bed on Sunday morning and go through some sacrifices to, to go somewhere to commit themselves to a group of people that are all devoted to Maui. Nobody's going to do it. But in the real story, the real God makes the real world, and he deserves real devotion, and he deserves real obedience, and he makes it so that we are glad to make sacrifices for him. You know, the baseball season's starting, so the boys, we had our first practice yesterday, and uh, it's always a fun time because... Uh, 
it's an opportunity to think about, I'm, I'm telling you this because I want, to think about your, I want you to think about your life in this way. Uh, it's an opportunity to think about the harder we train in the off-season, the harder we train in the preseason, the harder we go after practice, the sweeter it will make every victory. The sweeter it will make if we get to raise that championship trophy. The more we put in, the better it becomes. And I want to say to everybody here at Kenwood Baptist Church, the more you personally invest, we got a work day coming up. If you come to that work day and you get your hands dirty, you get, you get mud and dirt and grit under your fingernails and all kinds of other nastiness that you don't want to think about, you, you will feel more committed to Kenwood Baptist Church. You will look at the person working next to you and you'll think, I'm thankful for that person and we are in this together. If it's hard for you to get here on a Sunday morning, something, you know, makes it where you're out late or, I don't know, maybe, I don't know what's, there's all kinds of things going on. The more, the more of a sacrifice it is for you to get here, the sweeter it will make it when you come. The sweeter it will make it when you enjoy fellowship together. The more something costs you personally, the more you value it. That's what I'm trying to say here. Psalm 136 is glorious. It is one of the most grammatically and structurally parallel poems in the whole Psalter. And I think it was written for what we just did. It was written to be read antiphonally, and the proof of that is the way that, if you notice, a thought will be begun in one line, and then it'll be carried forward after the refrain in the next line. We'll see that as we go through a number of, uh, at a number of points. Um, the psalm starts out coming at us in three verse units, and I just want to di- let's just dive in, and and we'll think through these units together. Uh, the three verse units, he, the, the psalmist eventually departs from that, but he starts out. So look at verses one through three. He says, "Give thanks to the Lord," and we've observed before how you've got those small caps there. That's referring to Yahweh. When you see in your Bible, in your Old Testament. When you see it printed L-O-R-D, and the R is a capital R, but it's not as tall as the L, the capital L at the beginning, that's, that's, ref, that's showing you that in Hebrew, what you have there is the divine name, the name by which the Lord identified himself. Uh, he said to Moses, I am who, who I am. And what seems to have happened is the Hebrews started referring to him basically as he is. So this, you know, like the, the he is form of this... Uh, word that God used to say I am is Yahweh. And, and so it says give thanks to Yahweh. And then what the psalm is going to do, he's going to start giving you reasons to give thanks to him. And he's just going to keep enumerating them all the way to the, to the end until he ends where he begins. And, and where he begins is give thanks to Yahweh. And where he ends, verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. So he's going to start and finish the same way. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. And, and I just want to say again, I think that what the psalmist has in mind here is the fact that the Lord is good in ways that the other pagan gods, the other gods that people worship, simply are not. I mean, think of the stories that you know. You know stories about, well, you know stories about this guy named Maui, who's supposed to be this heroic demigod who rescues humanity 
except for the little problem of that sin that he committed at the beginning that resulted in death to humanity. That's a problem, right? He brought sin. And, and th then think of, think of tales you know about Zeus and all the women that he took advantage of. The gods, the other gods, they are not good. Where do we get the concept of good? From what we know about God. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And God's goodness, God's goodness grounds our knowledge of what is good. It is the source of the very concept of good. So sometimes people talk about Christianity having a problem of evil. I really don't think Christianity has a problem of evil. I think we got an explanation for it. Sin. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And God cursed the world because of sin. God brought judgment on the world because of sin. That's where all the bad stuff comes from. You know what I think? I think anybody that's not a Christian has a problem of good. If you are not a Christian... If you don't have this utterly and absolutely good God at the foundation of everything, how do you explain any goodness in the world? You think it came from Zeus? You think it came from evolution? You think intelligent design means good for the world? I don't, I don't see how that follows. I don't think your logic works. I don't think you have an adequate explanation for all of the goodness in the world. I think you have a problem of good if you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Verse 2. We'll come back to this idea in the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods. What this is saying is that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he's over all those other deities. He's Lord. This is also verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now, if we had been present when the psalmist was writing this psalm, and if we were kind of looking over his shoulder and watching what he was putting on the paper, I think we'd be really surprised by what he writes here. Because I would expect him to say, give thanks to the God of gods, because he's omniscient and they're not. Or because he's omnipotent and they're not. Or because he's, um, pick an omni, you know, he's omnipresent and they're not. And he doesn't do that, does he? He says, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. He's going against all expectation. And, and as we continue through the psalm, I mean, look down, for instance, at verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. I would expect him to say, because he's righteous, or because he's wrathful, or because he keeps his word to Pharaoh. And he says, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I think what the psalmist is assuming is that it's eventually going to cause his audience to realize that there is really, there's really no distinction in a certain way of thinking at it, about it, between God's love and God's wrath. It's simply a different application of who God is. Let me say this another way. There's no distinction between God's almighty power and God's everlasting love. It's just a different application of who God is. What I'm talking about is often referred to by theologians as divine simplicity. It's this idea that 
God's character gets expressed in these ways that we refer to as God's attributes. God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his om omnipresence, his, you know, on and on and on we could go. His love, his wrath, his mercy, but really it's just God. It's who God is. It's God's character being applied according to these different circumstances. And I think, I think that's what the psalmist is assuming, and I think that's why he keeps saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's very instructive. It's tremendously instructive about the character and nature of God. Because unlike the Quran, where if you go read, Matt and I were talking about this earlier, and, and he said that uh, Ravi Zacharias has worked, he's talking to me about this chapter that Ravi Zacharias uh, has written where he's worked through all these statements in the Quran that, that indicate that actually Allah is above that little feeling called love. What characterizes Allah is not steadfast love. What characterizes Allah is justice. That's what characterizes Allah. Maybe there are other things that would rise to prominence. But you're not going to say about Allah, you're not going to explain who he is and what he has done with the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. So listen to what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that the deepest heart of God is a heart of love. If we ask the question, why is Yahweh God of gods? The answer in Psalm 136 is because of his love. Why is Yahweh Lord of lords? Because he is love. Because his steadfast love endures forever. Why did Yahweh make the world? This is what we're about to see in verses 4 through 9. Because of love. I mean, I don't think it's wrong to personalize this and say, Yahweh made the world because he loves you. So this first three verses repeats this call to praise because of God's love and because of who he is. The next three verses start into creation, and that, and, and that continues really into the, new, the next two sets of three verses. So you're gonna get, we're going to get um, the, the wonders and then the heavens and the earth in verses 4 through 6, and then the lights, the sun, moon, and stars in verses 7 through 9. So look at verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders. The only thing that keeps us from, from thinking of the heavens and the earth, what, what the psalmist is about to talk about, and the sun and the moon and the stars, the only thing that keeps us from, from thinking of these things the way the psalmist is thinking about them is our familiarity with them and our failure to ponder them. But if you, will, if you will try to break out of the familiarity with the sky and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars, you'll agree with the psalmist. These are wonders. This is amazing. This is a fabulous place. And Yahweh alone did this. In, in context, in of verses 1 through 3, the reference to the, you know, God of gods, Lord of lords. This is like a statement that says, there's not some intelligent, 
designer. It's Yahweh. It's God. There's not some uh, natural selector out there, which is kind of a way for the atheists and the evolutionists to smuggle in some sort of designer. Uh, there's not some natural selector out there. It's Yahweh. He alone does great wonders. And it's not Baal, Lord of the heavens. And it's not Zeus, Lord of the heavens. And, and the skies, the, the stars, those aren't pagan heroes memorialized in the night sky to shine up there forever. It's Yahweh doing these things. He alone has done these great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who, to him who, here again, verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens. I would expect him to say, because he's so smart, look at his wisdom and his intelligence. No, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at the way the Lord is depicted using his wisdom in the process of creation. Depicted spreading out the earth like a craftsman over the waters. And then decking the night sky with the great lights. And then, and then verses 8 and 9 just walk through in the order of the things enumerated in Genesis 1. Uh, one commentator I read said, this is the, the longest in order recitation of the creation account anywhere outside of Genesis 1. In, in other words, you know, you've got uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then later, uh, a, few, a few, about verse 14 or so, you get into the great lights and the sun to rule the day and the moon and the stars to rule the night. It's, it's the very order of Genesis chapter 1. Why did God make the world? For his steadfast love endures forever. As I was thinking about this and this being a, a birthday week, I, I couldn't help but think of the way that my sweet wife has studied our kids. And I couldn't help but think of the way that she lovingly thought through what would most bless our children. And then the way that she sacrificially went after gifts that would bless uh, our, our birthday boy this week. And that's the way that God made the world. God made the world the way a mother thinks, what's going to delight my child? God made the world as a loving father who said, how can I cause them to feel a stupefied sense of amazement at the grandeur of, of, of creation? How can I cause them to feel my steadfast love that endures forever? So the psalmist moves from creation in verses 4 through 9 uh, to redemption in verses 10 and following. So let's just, let's just pause and say, verses 1 through 3, we've got this call to give thanks. And then verses 4 through 9, we've got this focus on, on um, creation. And then now in verse 10, uh, the, the, the first three verses here, verses 10 through 12, are going to focus on God bringing Israel out of Egypt. And then the next three verses, verses 13 uh, through 15 are going to focus on the Red Sea. So, you know, he's, he's continuing with this three-verse uh, pattern. 
So we come to verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And I want to I make a, an observation about the way the psalmist is operating with his audience. Uh, and, and, and I hope that what this will do is help you to think about the Bible and help you to think about the way that the biblical authors operated. And then I hope it'll enable you to imitate the biblical authors. Okay, so, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider everything that the, the original audience, the intended audience of this psalm, the original audience, you know, is one thing, and then the intended audience, I think, includes us. Consider everything that the, that the writer has to take for granted that they're going to believe for him to, to operate like he does here. I'm going to go from Genesis 1 and 2 straight over to Exodus. And I'm going to take for granted that my audience is going to agree with me that it is an unequivocally good thing for the God of the Bible, look at verse 10, to strike down the firstborn of Egypt. How can he do this? Because he, he's, he's assuming my audience is going to know the Bible. My audience is going to understand that Genesis 3.15 puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And my audience is going to understand that God promised to bless Abraham and to curse anybody that's opposed to Abraham. And my audience is going to understand that when Pharaoh and Egypt start opposing Israel, they're identifying themselves with the seed of the serpent, and, that, and they're opposing Abraham and his descendants, and that guarantees that they're going to be cursed like their father, the devil. So it's a good thing for God to strike his enemies. All, and, and, you know, you got the whole story of the promises made to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, then to Jacob, then Jacob and all his descendants go down into Egypt. All that's being assumed and taken for granted. The psalmist is assuming that his audience knows the Bible couple of, of, of points here. The better you know your Bible, the more sense the Psalms are going to make to you. Let me add this. The more you believe the Bible, the more the Psalms are going to make sense to you. And I would add, and I think this is something the Bible teach. I mean, Psalm 119 teaches this all over the place. The more you obey the Bible, you're, the more deeply you're going to see into the meaning of the text and the more deeply you're going to feel what the text is teaching. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, that tenth and final plague, for his steadfast love endures forever. Yes, it's justice against Pharaoh. And yes, it's steadfast love to Israel. And this goes back to that, that thing about divine simplicity, doesn't it? The Lord is exercising the same aspects of his character and it's being applied differently. It, 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 it reminded me of that, that uh, depiction in The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, that depiction of when the children get there and Aslan is going to sing the world into existence. And the old magician, he, he, he shows up too. He's on the scene too. And the children, they see the great lion who represents God and they hear him begin, begin to sing these these, this glorious song, and the notes are as deep as the earth itself. And, and then there's this glorious melody, and all these flowers and animals and everything starts popping into existence as a result of the song that the Creator is singing. And the other guy, the uncle, the magician, the guy who's not worshiping Aslan, 
he's hearing a snarling, roaring, angry lion. That's what he's hearing. And, and I think it's possible, it's possible for people to respond to God's love that way. It's God's steadfast love for him to redeem Israel from Egypt. And I don't, I mean, you know people. Maybe there's somebody sitting here today who thinks to themselves, it doesn't look very loving to me for the firstborn of Egypt to get struck down. And, and I think the problem is not that God is not being loving. The problem is that you're refusing to believe the story. You're refusing to acknowledge God's rights over the world that he created. You're refusing to believe the fact that the Bible says that, that all people owe him thanks and praise. And when they don't render it, they place themselves under his just wrath. They don't continue to deserve life. They don't deserve life to begin with. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This is beautiful, the way, this is, the way that the psalmist is bringing together earlier statements in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 6, the Lord says, I'm going to bring them out with an outstretched arm. And then in Exodus 13, uh, the, the, Moses starts saying, by a strong hand, the Lord brought Israel out from Egypt. And then Moses himself starts bringing those two concepts together by a strong... The ESV renders it mighty hand, but it's the same Hebrew term, terminology, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord brought Israel out from Egypt. And the psalmist is bringing these statements together to celebrate what God has done. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him. And then verse 16. So there, verse 15 is the end of that last three-verse uh, unit. And then at this point, the three-verse units stop. And we get one verse on the wilderness. Verse 16. To him who led his people through the wilderness. And then verse 17 takes us into the conquest. And, and um, it's interesting and I think instructive to observe what he passes over. You see what he passes over? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years because of the people's sin. And a whole generation died. Now, if his audience knows as much about the story as he's assuming that they do, I think he intends for his audience to think about this. And, and here's, here's what I think he wants us to get. He wants us to know that the Lord can do as he pleases. He can create the world. He can bring Israel out of Egypt. He can provide for them in the wilderness. He can strike down the kings. He can give the land to his people. The only thing that can stop God from blessing his people is their sin. The only thing that will keep the Lord from doing for Israel what he said he would do for them is their rebellion. So, verses 17 through 22 focus on the conquest of Canaan. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings. Notice how to him who struck down in verse 17 is parallel with verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Same terminology, balancing sections there in the middle. So it's like you've got give, give thanks, and then... Uh, creation, 
and then exodus, and then conquest, and then uh, we, we, we move out uh, to verse 23. So I, I'm kind of passing quickly over the conquest. Look at what happens in verse 23. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. It's like the psalmist is looking back on Israel's history and rehearsing everything that God has done for his people, and now he's bringing it, he's making it personal. He's including himself. And I think what, in the, in the, in the flow of thought in the Psalms, you know, last time we were in Psalms together, we, we noted how in, in chapter 135, verse 14, there's a quotation of Deuteronomy 32, 36, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, which is a prophecy about the future in Deuteronomy 32 that's claimed for the present in Psalm 135. And then look at 137.1, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. So it's as though the psalmist in 136 is speaking as a member of that generation that was exiled to Babylon. And, and it's like he's saying, look what God did for us in the past at the exodus, at the conquest, and look at what God has done for us. He remembered us. Why does he say that? Because God's going to bring his people out of Babylon. And that is going to be fulfilled in what, what happens in Christ on the cross. Both the exodus and that initial return from exile to Babylon, all these things are pointing forward to the final and complete redemption that God accomplishes in Christ on the cross. So we can say the words of verse 23. We can say these words. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. It's not, we, we saw this in Deuteronomy 7, it's not because God's people are more numerous than other people. It's not because they're more impressive in worldly terms. We're, we're, we're low. We're lowly. And he remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. And then verse 25, he who gives food to all flesh. I think this kind of suggests new exodus, new provision through the wilderness. And I would suggest to you that the new provision that we're experiencing for our sojourn through the wilderness on the way to the land of promise is right here in the Lord's Supper. Yes, maybe there's also a, a, a reference to God's providential provision for all people. He does give food to all, all flesh. Every good gift comes down from the Lord. And then it concludes, verse 26, Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me give you some, some applications. I meant to do these along the way. Passed right over them in all my excitement. First point of application just comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. We, we want to strive to be people who do everything from love. We're going to fail. We're not going to be loving people because we're sinners. But Jesus has accomplished redemption, and Jesus has set us a great example to follow. And we want to follow his example of self-sacrificial love. And every time, every time we fail, and we will fail all the time. I failed this week. I was so self-centered. I, I got sick this week, and, and I sort of got used to being pampered, and everybody bringing me food. And, and, then, and then I was really self-centered and selfish and not very nice to my wife. Um, 
we're, we're going to have to repent. We're gonna, we, are, we are repenters is who we are, Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a repenter. That's what you are. You're just going to constantly need to repent. But we want to be imitators of God, so we want to keep striving to love. And with this idea of, of divine simplicity, I mean, there, there are ways that God is God and we're never going to be God. But we can still pursue wholeness. We can, we can try to be people who, who seek knowledge in a loving way for other people. We can try to be people who use our ability, our power. We're not going to be omnipotent. But we can try to extend our influence and, and our authority out of love for others. We can pursue a holistic, loving application of all the, the, the ways that God has gifted and, and blessed us. And then thinking of, of the way that, that um, the psalmist passed over the 40 years in the wilderness, let me urge you to flee temptation. Flee temptation. Sin is never going to result in God's blessing on your life. It's just not. Sin is only going to result in God's discipline. He's a faithful God. One of the ways that steadfast love can be spoken of as an application of justice, right? He, he strikes down Pharaoh, and then he causes that whole generation to die in the wilderness, and the psalmist keeps saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, if he changes the rules, if he changes the standards, can anybody trust him? Well, he said he was going to strike down Pharaoh, and then he didn't do it. He said he was going to cause all these people to die in the wilderness, and then he led us into the land. Either he can't enforce his standards, or his standards can't be relied upon. It's loving of him to uphold the standard. It's loving of him to communicate to us, when I say something, you can trust me. And then, I just want to urge you. I don't know how to do this, but we want, to, we want more and more to feel that everything that God does and the most central aspect of who he is is his steadfast love. God created the world because of love. He accomplished the exodus because of love. He, he brought Israel into the land at the conquest because of love. You know John 3.16. This is the way that God loved the world. He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, you can bring yourself into the love of God. You can, you can turn from your sin. You can repent of your rebellion. You can, you can say, it, yeah, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable that the Bible calls me a sinner, but ultimately the Bible's right and I am a sinner. You can, you can embrace that reality, which is true. Just ask your friends, ask your family. They know you're a sinner. You can acknowledge it. And then you can recognize, there's nothing I can do to save myself from my sin. But God loved me and sent his son. God loved me and made the world and gave me life. And then you can trust him. And, and all that wrath and mercy, I'm sorry, all that wrath and justice becomes for you mercy and love. As Rich Mullins wrote, there's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my own. 
and he keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone, keeps me aching with a yearning, keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we worship you because there is none like you, and you will never change, and you are the source of all good and all truth and all love, and you have loved us in ways that we cannot begin to understand. So we pray for your help, and we pray that you would cause us to want truth and obedience and righteousness more then we feel the pull of sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us ever to experience this reckless, raging fury of your love in Christ. Amen.